When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey y'all, this is Marcus King, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now... On with the show. How can you laugh when you know I'm down? How can you laugh when you know I'm down, diggers? Okay. It's Christian Swain, the rock and roll archaeologist. Hey, hey, pod family. Coming to you from San Francisco, California. And just about ready to be self-quarantined. No, I don't have coronavirus. Uh, I have a cold. I've been checking my temperature daily since saturday and uh i'm pretty sure it's nothing more than the common cold but uh yeah let's talk about covid19 for a second just a quick public service announcement from pantheon podcasts hey guys um this is bad all right probably similar to the 1918 spanish flu event the little monster is loose again and on the run and we with very few places to hide. But let's get real, just just for a second, okay? Hear me out. First, please, keep up with The Who. Uh, of course, not The Who, W-H-O, or even H-U, but the World Health Organization. And keep up with the CDC. They are the best information centers you can have. That's cdc.gov and who.int. Go there first. Don't trust what you see on social media and certainly don't spread infectious misinformation. Yes, wash your hands as much as possible. Do it for 20 plus seconds with soap. Try to avoid unnecessary contact with other people for the next month or so. Stay away from large events until this virus goes dormant. And please, please keep the elderly and those with underlying health conditions in your thoughts. Yes, it is they who appear to suffer the worst in this now official pandemic. See if you can help those around you that fit into that category. They are at high risk of seriousness with this thing. Of course, keep yourself safe, uh, keep informed, and don't panic. It's a thing, but it's not the zombie apocalypse. And while you're sitting around uh, doing nothing, uh, because, uh, you know, you need a hazmat suit to go outside, listen to more podcasts, huh? You know where to go. How about pantheonpodcasts.com? You know, take a look around. Uh, Find a show and add one or two to your favorite podcast app. Tell a friend who uh, is in isolation or self-quarantined as well. They will greatly appreciate it. And by all means, 
keep a chin up. We will get through this together. All right, let's get to the show. have a returning guest with us today our old pal andrew grant jackson the man named after three presidents is with us to discuss his new book 1973 rock at the crossroads we last had andrew on to dig into his 1965 the most revolutionary year in music book so it's kind of a theme from him. I can tell you his 1965 book is canon around here. We used it in our Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast, and we will be using 1973 Rock at the Crossroads in uh, upcoming episodes as well. So the first thing I do when putting these things together is to pick four songs to share that either directly or indirectly conveys uh, the, the topic at hand. Uh, yeah, usually this is pretty easy. Uh, obviously, if we are discussing a particular artist, uh, you know, narrowing it down is either simple or personal for me. Uh, maybe I just want to make a point. Uh, but uh, who do you narrow it down for uh, when you have an entire year? And how about one like 1973, where, to Andrew's point, so much and varying types of great songs and artists are released. Um, well, I, I, I guess I, I figured I'd just go with my gut. Uh, first, uh, let's be a little diverse, and then uh, let's have some fun. Um, just waiting until that last song uh, to, to, get, to get that one, yeah. Uh, Andrew's basic premise is that 1973 saw rock peak and diverge. He's correct. Uh, we have about the same assessment. Um, so much is going on in that year. There is, you know, the obvious from the perspective of almost 50 years. Yeah, Bowie, the Mighty Zap, uh, Pink Floyd are huge. Uh, though Bowie's only a hit uh, in the UK in that particular year. Um, there is glam and there is Prague. Uh, there's Motown and Philly Soul. James Brown is funking it out and P-Funk is beginning to hit. There are singer-songwriters of Laurel Canyon at Doug Weston's Troubadour. Max's Kansas City paired two newcomers, uh, one called Marley, the other Springsteen. Southern rock is getting to be a big thing and outlaw country is snapping at Nashville. Concerts are going from guys on stage to spectaculars, spectacles, arenas, and stadiums are filling. FM is taking over AM as the place to be on rock radio. It, too, is a most revolutionary year and, as Andrew states, at a crossroads. The Vietnam War is finally coming to a close. Nixon will be disgraced and forced to leave office in the next year. 
And socially, Roe v. Wade is now the law of the land, though, as we know, that particular ruling is still uh, being debated, uh, mostly by men, uh, which, I don't know, just kind of seems weird to me. Eh, I'll leave that one right here. Okay, let's get all the details. I give you our friend, Andrew Grant Jackson. You used to say, live and let live. If this ever-changing world in which we live in makes you give in a cry, say live and let die. Welcome back to Deeper Digs and Rock, Andrew Grant Jackson. How are you doing today? Oh, great. Thank you for having me back. Of course, of course. You've written another fantastic book. You know, the last time we spoke, we discussed your uh, your previous rock and roll book, The Excellent 1965, The Most Revolutionary Year in Music. So I guess the first question needs to be, why is 1973 at the crossroads? I, I would say uh, for a couple of reasons, though. One, it was the last blockbuster year that all those great 60s artists kind of released a classic album or single at the same time, you know, the same year. And then you suddenly had these mid-level veterans who had been, you know, working hard mm-hmm. over the so, last oh, five Oh, so like the, the Rolling Stones' Goathead Soup, I think, comes out in 73. Quadrophenia comes out in 73 from The Who, things like that. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. Houses of the Holy, you know. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Beatles split into four, but, you know... Uh, I think Band on the Run comes out in 73, which is Paul McCartney's first real big hit after, uh, as, as an album, with a band now called Wings, uh, uh, after the split, right? Yeah, and, the, you know, the, the other Beatles all have great singles, you know, like yeah. in Mind Games, Photograph, Give Me Love, Peace on Earth. Yeah. And then, you know, he had... Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, you know, with Inner Visions, you know, let's Marvin Gaye, let's get it on. James mm-hmm. Brown, you know, even you know Elvis is still uh, doing some good songs out there. Good. But um, well, so, I, yeah, is uh, does he is uh, Suspicious Minds come out in '73? Is because uh, I think that's his last charting uh, single, right? That was that well that that was his last number one I, yeah you're yeah but this year he had like a number one album like oh, the aloha. Life, hawaii. Yeah, yeah yeah hawaii right aloha right 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 yeah okay so so it is kind of the end of, of one era in the beginning of another is uh, is your point yeah you you know you had you know these people like bowie elton john pink floyd marley and the whalers they all suddenly kind of blast to the front of the pack and then and then he had this new bunch of uh, superstars that debuted, Springsteen, Billy Joel, Queen, Aerosmith, New York Dolls, Leonard Skinner, all the same year. And but and then the interesting thing, the real crossroads thing that I, I was interested in was that radio kind of uh, found out how to synthesize and commodify uh, the they basically they, they mixed top 40 AM with, you know, progressive rock FM. 
and they came up with album-oriented rock radio, which played tons of great music, but it began to homogenize rock and roll. But at the same time, underneath, even while it was kind of beginning to stagnate, underneath you had all these genres that were starting to spring up on the street, you know, punk and disco and, uh, you know, reggae was coming over and hip-hop started in the Bronx and, you know, Kraftwerk was doing techno on the fringes and the outlaw country guys and female rockers. So it was, it was just a really interesting, you know, period where so many different uh, trends were crisscrossing with each other. Yeah, we'll dive deeper into that. Mostly I'll ask questions about uh, the various artists because that it, the book is just chock filled with uh, what all these people are doing at this particular time. And, you know, to your point, uh, it's it's a big year for for all of them, either either uh, a, a beginning or um, uh, something new uh, or perhaps at the end of, of, of something. Um, but uh, just to dive a little bit deeper into. Yeah. So so radio uh, and the creation of AOR uh, album oriented rock, um, you know, you, you hit something about the the, the creation of of uh, this uh, homogenized um, playlist, uh, uh, which, you know, ha has now gone on to completely uh, dominate radio with, I think, you know, two or three players left in the in the game. Um, and so this is, it, are, are we talking about Lee Abrams uh, taking uh, the, um, uh, the pop format of AM radio uh, and then synthesizing it so that uh, the spins uh, to a DJ, it's no no longer the, 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 the FM DJ playing whatever he damn well pleases and exposing you to all kinds of new things, or AM radio's uh, use of uh, playing one song, uh, which may be from, uh, you know, a country white artist to, you know, an R&B artist uh, with the next song. Uh, these things are being synthesized. Is that is that what you're trying to, to, to say it begins really in 1973 with radio? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lee Abrams, as you mentioned, and, and um, there was a guy, a program director named Ron Jacobs, who in 72, um, he was the first guy to really go out. He was in San Diego and he went out to, he sent, uh, his people out to interview, I think it was like 4,000 people at supermarkets. And he would just ask, you know, all these random questions about what they listened to when they listened to it. And they got this sample that broke down, you know, the 13 year olds liked, you know, Donny Osmond and they listened at this time. And, you know, the 17 year olds like Black Sabbath and they listened to this time. And they, they came up with this, you know, demographic, you know, uh, data you know data crunching that analytics as we hear about all day long to these days yeah exactly yeah analytics and the you know for it's then he so he started using those analytics to program you know the what he would play but it, it wasn't until 73 that the fruits of his labor started to um become apparent and then billboard in 73 gave him like an award for you know new programmer of the year ah and and there was a guy named Mike Harrison who was uh, sort of, in his mind, he was, Ron Jacobs was uh, the guy that he was a rival with. And he he started writing a column called Album-Oriented Rock uh, for radio and records trade magazine because, uh, you know, I guess uh, middle of the road, M-O-R was a popular term then or something. Yeah. So he mm -hmm. kind of tweaked it to Album-Oriented Rock. And 
Um, so yeah, all those those players began kind of, uh, as you said, they they would they they would just pick they would pick the biggest you know album you know the guys like Zeppelin who didn't never didn't have singles so much anymore, but they had these big album tracks that went on for like seven minutes. But they would just pick they would tell the DJs you can pick one or two of a Zeppelin song to play. You know they would they would they started via limiting the uh, DJ's power because before they could just get high and talk about the war and put on like obscure music and yeah. do whatever they wanted. But yeah. They- yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, uh, so in 73, uh, you know, we, 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 we've established one interesting point and that is that radio itself, the gatekeepers uh, change how they are disseminating the music out to the public. Uh, and, and then I have to bring up uh, uh, something from the epilogue in the book, because I think it's there where you succinctly explain why 1973 was at the crossroads. And it's that around that time it ends the monoculture for rock and roll, because not too far in the distance is disco uh, and punk and hip hop. Um, which uh, is just the beginning of uh, the streams of today's very fragmented musical tastes, right? Right. Yeah. You know, it was, um, I, I think probably in the 60s, the, the Beatles and Motown, I would say, were sort of, they... Yeah, they, the, they, they dominated uh, the, radio. Yeah, where the Beatles went, everybody else kind of followed up, mm-hmm. you know, through 67. Yeah. And... Yeah. But um, and Motown and Motown, where even the Beatles went, uh, uh, was a was a, a dominating factor. Yes, yeah, and and so the, you know, seventy three still had all the, you know, the Beatles were still, and they were broken up. But the the you know, yeah, Band on the Run is a single. The I mean, Live and Let Die, you know, those those singles we mentioned before, they still kind of dominated as a collective force, you know. Uh, but after this, they would they kind of, um, you know, uh, began to kind of dissolve, you know, uh, for the rest of the seventies for different reasons. You know, Lennon basically checked out. And, yeah. You know, and, and Motown too. This year, they still were. They still had, uh, I think, five number one pop singles. You know, Diana Ross with yeah. "Touch Me in the Morning" and yeah. you know, Stevie yeah. Wonder and Martin. But uh, I mean, you can make. I think maybe the last you could possibly make a case that Michael Jackson and MTV had were a little bit of the monoculture in 80 in the eighties, but I don't think they really, uh, you know, I don't know if Michael Jackson, I guess Prince kind of, you know, followed me. He straddled lines. Uh, definitely. I mean, Michael Jackson did as well, but, uh, you know, they were, uh, I, I don't know. They, they were kind of playing into, uh, white audiences expectations, uh, uh, and, uh, they, you know, I, I think to your point, MTV does kind of bring back somewhat of a monoculture, an acceptable monoculture, but as we go through the eighties showing more aspects of, uh, Americans musical tastes. Um, but that's not the case in 73. It's still just a, you know, there's still just rock and roll, right? Yeah. And he, and he only had. There wasn't even um, that much rock and roll TV at the time. Maybe no. the Midnight Special, you yeah. know. Oh, yeah. Uh, Don Kirshner's Rock Concert. Yeah, there was that. But yeah. that was like at midnight or something on yeah, Friday. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, that was about it. That was about it. So, so you break the book up like 1965 in seasons, uh, beginning with winter and moving through spring, summer, and fall. You also do admit there are things that begin in 1972 and even a little before that and fall into 1974 and, and even mentions of later events uh, and musical genres. So just um, let us know why you set the book up this way. Yeah, that's... That's it's tricky because um, well, in the on the in the big picture we set the book up this way because uh, myself and the the publishers they wanted to focus on another year because you know the readers enjoy these books that kind of dissect a year, you know and um, and this was oh it's like a, it's it, like a big reference book for me yeah. <laughs> But in, in 73, we focused on because there was so much great, you know, Dark Side of the Moon came out. You know, there were so many. Uh, hey, you're getting ahead of me. Slow down. Okay. <laughs> but, but, you, but to your point of, yeah, it is. It, but it is always tricky to try to pull out one year from its surroundings, because even I take an example of uh, Deep Purple's uh, Smoke on the Water. They, that song came out on an album in 72. But even the Grammy Museum Hall of Fame lists it as a 73 song because it wasn't released as a single until spring of 73. And then that's when it became a big hit. So, I mean, there are, there are some things. And then like my, one of my favorite albums, one of the, my favorite chapters to write about was Joni Mitchell's Court and Spark, which uh, was one of my favorite albums from that period, but she recorded it all in the autumn of 73, but then her, her label boss, uh, David Geffen, held it back to like January 1st or 3rd. To, to come oh, out. yeah. To so like, right, right, right. You know, so there is just that overlap. You know, it's uh, not too, it can be kind of messy right on the edges of the, the year. But All right. Well, uh, let's start diving into uh, the particulars uh, here. Uh, uh, well, and there is a lot of music to get to. So uh, let's start with what ends up becoming the fourth highest selling album of all time. And that is Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. I'm betting everyone <laughs> listening uh, knows not only that album, but every track. Uh, and uh, at the very moment, uh, I mentioned it as the cover design by Storm Thurgeson and Aubrey Powell and George Hardy in their minds. Um, <laughs> so why and how do you think an album by a, a still relatively unknown English psychedelic act from the 60s that had lost its founding genius uh, came up with this enduring concept album. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. 
I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. I would say it was uh, three, three reasons come to mind. One is they had been um they originally started with sid barrett more uh pop song structured oriented and then after he left they they went off into uh well they would they'd always they'd always done long improvisational jams they were yeah. kind of like the the grateful dead of the england uh, uh, english yeah. underground of the, uh, the ufo club right right, right. Yeah. yeah uh but they'd been doing that for you know years and it had some success but they all kind of uh wanted to take it up to the next level. So they made a conscious decision to be much more structured with, and actually Roger Waters had been very influenced by um, John Lennon's Plastic Ono Band album, where his lyrics were just very uh, blunt and, you know, straightforward and, uh, uh, you know, emotional. So he wanted to do that and they wanted to kind of talk about more universal, less esoteric, abstract kind of things. And, um, and also the, some of the songs like uh, the brain damage, you know, which has the dark side of the moon line in there was inspired by, um, well, a, by Sid Baird, who they all, you know, they, they did love and they tried to help him out. And yeah. even after they tried to keep him in the band and then they tried to help him do solo albums. And he was just, you know, for whatever reason went off on his, his own thing. But, uh, and Roger Waters himself had had some moments where he, he felt a little, um, some possible twinges of mental illness. So like there was, you know, the soul of all that going into the music and the, and I think the, on a macro level, the, the, the album almost, you could say reflects kind of like uh, the sixties, you know, dream of, you know, LSD and, you know, transcend into the fantasy stratospheres, you know, that, I, I, you know, they, to the to its worst extreme, you kind of go into insanity, like Sid Barrett possibly, and so they're kind of coming back down and do like time is ticking on and like oh now we're coming back into reality. You know, the '60s dream is over here. We got to make money, like their other song, and it's they kind of reflected like kind of a trend that a lot of people were going through. You know, the baby boomers in college had been, you know, tripping and doing all this crazy stuff, and now they're 
getting older and they got to get a real job and you know so yeah it, tapped into that it's a it's a it's a sort of uh uh you know a, a universal uh 40 minutes of uh the uh average english life uh you know I, uh, as it goes through it's uh it's various songs uh, in a in a sonic palette of uh, expansiveness uh, that you get from Floyd themselves, uh, a, a a veteran uh, band uh, with numerous studio albums behind them, uh, and now with uh, you know a uh, pr producing uh, Wonderkin uh, in Alan Parsons. Uh, you know, doing the engineering there. Uh, right. And that, that creates this sonic uh, palette that, uh, you know, for, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, taking a couple of puffs of weed and putting the headphones on uh, will, you know, <laughs> transport you uh, to another world. So at that time, it's hard for people to go back and, you know, I've, I've discovered that, uh, you know, it, it's hard sometimes to even if you remember it as, as a as a as a point of reference of, of being there, of going back and trying to realize just how extraordinary something like Dark Side of the Moon is the first time you listen to it. Uh, and um, uh, and that 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 you know stays with you uh, and, you know, for the rest of your life. And that's definitely one of those albums. Yeah, yeah. It's a, and a, you know now it's many generations. You know their parents passing on to their kids, and it's a, it's definite touchstone. I think. Oh, you know? remember two hundred plus weeks on the uh, Billboard Top Two Hundred. Uh, you know, which is, you know, decades. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. The only album, uh, I think, uh, to ever do something like that. So, all right, next I have to ask about a film that will introduce to the West what may be the first non-English speaking rock and roll, uh, genre, uh, and that carries on to this day. And that is the film, The Harder They Fall, which of course brings in reggae. Yeah, that was um, that. That was a film that uh, you know, Jimmy Cliff had had been. He'd started out in Jamaica, and then he came to England for a while to try to make it. And then he had, you know, uh, when he was back in Jamaica, uh, uh, a filmmaker had wanted to build a movie around him, and it took years for them to finish it. You know, they had yeah. been working they, on it for like four years, if I remember right. Yeah, and uh, but it. Uh, it was released in the UK in 72 and then it in February 73 in the U S and, um, with the accompanying, uh, soundtrack album, which, uh, the, uh, filmmaker Perry Hensel had, um, selected songs from the last kind of five or well that by that point, I guess maybe, uh, six, seven years of the best, uh, kind of, a, it went from ska to uh, Rocksteady, which was sort of the missing link between reggae and ska, you yep. know, and then reggae. And it, so the, the album ended up encapsulating like that whole evolution of the, you know, the, what was going on in Jamaica at that time. And um, mm -hmm. it just, uh, that in that year, um, Bob Marley and the Whalers began, uh, you know, touring the U S and uh, Chris Blackwell, who was tied in with, you know, uh, the harder they come as well. He, yeah, he Island began, Records. Mm -hmm. Island Records. They they started releasing uh, Marley's albums, uh, Catch a Fire and uh, Burning, 
And um, so that yeah, that was really the year that uh, reggae uh, started really breaking through. Uh, like the the I shot the sheriff was on Bob Marley's album in '73, and Clapton covers it in '74. Right, yeah. right, right, and it begins to uh, Bob's uh, star really begins to rise with that. Uh, I I did uh, uh, inadvertently said non English speaking, and of course Jamaica was. Uh, was uh, at one time a, a British colony, um, uh, so it is an English-speaking uh, country. But uh, but it has its own uh, its own culture uh, that uh, that they brought up. You know, most famously Rastafarianism, right? Right, and and even you know, it was amazing too. Is that um, it also was a major influence on hip hop, which started. Oh. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Okay, you well, just hold on that one. Okay, I know, I know where you're going with 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 that. So, uh, another interesting milestone for 1973 is that Bruce Springsteen and Aerosmith, both very much still with us today, release their first albums and go on to gigantic success. Uh, two very different acts, uh, but both building on something of past success. Uh, you, you know, Aerosmith's always been compared to, to uh, as a, an American Rolling Stone uh, um, uh, or maybe a, a little of the faces, uh, again, uh, an English act. Uh, and then Bruce's music is an amalgamation of everything from original 50s rock and roll to Wall of Sound to Bob Dylan and beyond, right? Yes. And, you know, it's really interesting, too, how they're kind of entwined with um, together with both the New York Dolls and Billy Joel that year. Mm-hmm. Because it was, it was funny because they were all on Columbia and both Springsteen and Aerosmith on January 5th. Um, so almost uh, like two days from now, well, as we're recording this, yeah. Now, um, they their debut albums w- were released, and the funny thing was that uh, Clive Davis really loved Springsteen, so they the company put all their marketing or from uh, publicity power behind him and kind of just uh, threw a. Uh, press photo on top of a bunch of clouds for the cover of Aerosmith's album, like threw it out in the background and uh, gave them no support. And uh, uh, and then the irony was when time Springsteen came to release his second album that year, because he released two amazing albums that year, by that time Clive Davis was gone from the label, so they ignored Springsteen then for this new guy that they got, uh, Billy Joel. <laughs> and then yeah. he was in the Aerosmith boat. But... But all of them, uh, the thing that Billy Joel had many of his own career, you know, problems, but what united all of them was that they kept persevering even when they were almost ignored or dumped by their labels. They just, through their sheer force of their live shows and like relentless touring, just going on stage every night and winning over town by town, they all, you know, they're still here today. Yeah, That's still the best way to do it is, uh, you know, uh, you, 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 the, the, the labels can only help you so much. Uh, you know, you have to, if, if your songs resonate uh, and you get on the road, um, you know, it's just a matter of how much uh, you have to work uh, to, to gain the, that, uh, that audience. And, uh, you know, yeah, all, all three of those guys uh, definitely did that. Um, uh, you, oh, you can see why. I, yeah, sure. Oh, I, I, I meant to say the connection with the New York Dolls was Aerosmith shared the same management company as the Dolls. 
Um, but at the time, the Dolls were considered to be the rising stars. Uh, and Aerosmith was kind of like the step, <laughs> the little step, you know, kid of the the uh, managers. But but I think it seems like, you know, the Dolls, they, they, I don't know if they had the work ethic in the long picture as these other guys, or they had a bunch of reasons, probably heroin. and But although Aerosmith had that problem, too, you know? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I could uh, make a case that, uh, you know, Aerosmith's a little bit more believable in their um, – who they were and their stage persona and, and how it translated, uh, you know, the, the dolls, I think, you know, and we'll talk a little bit about them, uh, here in a bit. Uh, but they, um, you know, there, there's some, some sort of like inauthentic piece to them. Uh, and I don't know what it is. It's just, it's always bugged me a, a, about, about them. Uh, it's all, it's almost, Oh, it's, it's over the top and they know it. Whereas Aerosmith can be over the top, but, that, but they don't exactly know it. You know, they, they still believe it. Uh, and uh, and let's face it, uh, Steven Tyler's a way better singer than David Johansson ever was. Uh, <laughs> and Joe Perry's, um, yeah, you know, a better guitar player than uh, Johnny Thunders, right? Yeah. They, you know, and speaking to your thing about uh, authenticity, I don't know if uh, David Johansson was funny. He'd always wanted to be in the Warhol scene where – the transvestites were, you know, like a big part of that scene, but he was a straight guy. Yeah. And so they kind of kept him at arm's length, you know, like <laughs> no, he wasn't really in there, but he kind of took that, the, you know, I guess the, 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 uh, you know, the cross-dressing was like the, the zeitgeist of that time, you know, in New York city and he, they took that and they, you know, made it part of their thing. But yeah, they, but like I, I said, there, there's a there's a bit of inauthenticity to uh, to 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 the dolls that I, when I see them on stage, it's just doesn't quite. I, I don't know. There's some some fakery to it that I just can sniff. Uh, right. And 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 I'm not I'm not suggesting that that Aerosmith are you know this great rock and roll band, although they did prove to be a great rock and roll band uh, over the decades. And look, you know, they're still selling out, uh, you know, residencies in Vegas and things like that. Uh, uh, so there's something to be said about that. And, and, and you know, the same can be said about Bruce. Uh, you know, Bruce is a an amalgamation of uh, these various piece parts that he put together uh, on purpose to create a stage persona um, that would translate. And, you know, uh, he went even, you know, even deeper into the, you know, the the American psyche. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, and I can see why Columbia would gravitate towards Bruce because, you know, let's face it, Columbia loved Dylan. Uh, you know, he saved them uh, in the in the early 60s. Uh, and, um, you know, Clive uh, could see that you know, uh, Bruce and Bob have some things in common, uh, you know, as the, um, you know, the, the everyman, the, um, uh, uh, you know, can, can translate to, uh, to a wider audience. One would think on paper. Um, so maybe that had something to do with it as well. And Bruce definitely on his first album totally, uh, went he, he went super Bob Dylan on, you know, very surreal <laughs> lyrics. And yeah. it's his most Bob Dylan album for sure. You yeah. Know, cause he... Yeah. Well, speaking of, uh, of, uh, Mr. Dylan, what's he up to in 1973? You know, it's funny. It's a, it's a funny year for, 
Bob, because I mentioned in the book, he had two two albums. Uh, well, he did the soundtrack for Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, and um, then he did Planet Waves. Well, although I, he recorded Planet Waves with the band, although that actually was another one that David Geffen with Johnny E was on the same did the same label with Johnny Mitchell. He that got held back for like a day or two until January second or third or something. Mm. But I think if you know, he, uh, knocking on heaven's door, that's a classic, you know, forever young on planet waves. That's, you know, a very, you know, famous song. Yeah. I, he, those are kind of his two big ones. I think that year, you know, I think you could take both those albums and make one really good album, <laughs> no, <laughs> you, right. you know, but it, it's not, I don't think it's like, it's not Dylan's, uh, I, I kind of, uh, feel like, you know, in the 65 book, you know, it was definitely the Beatles, Dylan and the Stones were kind of the, the, uh, the, the top big tier, right. Top tier in, in this, in this book, I feel like Dylan's kind of been, you know, uh, replaced by his Bowie in a sense It's like mm -hmm. Bowie's the real zeitgeist Zelig guy in this book. He's just popping up all over the place, you know? Yeah, I guess we'll have to bring him up here in a minute. Uh, but, uh, I, I, you know, I noticed that you made reference to Martin Scorsese's bloated but fascinating HBO fail vinyl, um, which we here at Pantheon did a recap podcast. Uh, uh, and that uh, they also picked 1973 for the timeline of his particular rock and roll fever dream. Uh, you know, Iggy Pop and the Dolls are killing off this old music uh you know and and, and again you know i i don't want to th throw down on the dolls uh too much they they are trying to do something different um and there is some stasis in uh in in rock and roll and uh and and some people are feeling that and i i think people like iggy pop uh, and the dolls are feeling that uh, this old music needs to to go, uh, and uh, along with many others that, you know, the that 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 the the show vinyl uh, tried to pigeonhole into a narrative being born, are disco, punk, and new wave. All three of these things kind of begin here in this '73 period. So let me get your thoughts on each of the the three up and coming genres as they are being concocted in mostly New York City in 1973. So let's start um, with punk, since 1973 is also the year that the MC5 break up, which we consider the founding fathers of uh, of that uh, genre. Yeah, that was, uh, yeah, I, I think it was like New Year's, January 1st, 1973. They're on stage at the the... the the MC five were on stage in Detroit at the grand ballroom. But then, uh, Wayne Kramer like walked off that night in the middle of the, the set or something that was kind of, they, and that was it. Him. Yeah. And they, and they never did get back together. Uh, you know, Wayne went on to do some, uh, some interesting stuff, uh, on his own after a, a prison uh, term. Uh, and, um, uh, but, uh, they, they never again, uh, uh, get back together. So, but punk kind of does start there in, in 73. I mean, you can really, you know, as opposed to, um, uh, you know, you know, the, the period of, of, of the Stooges and MC5, that late sixties period, you know, you could put them in a garage rock scene or even today they, they sound a little bluesy. Uh, in some ways, they don't have that rat-a-tat-tat -tat, uh, attack. But I think with raw power, 
um, you are beginning to really see uh, the beginnings of, you know, what is going to happen in the latter part of the decade, right? Yeah, just, you know, stripped down, yelling it, yeah. <laughs> screaming it like a like a crazy monkey and just banging it out and then it's over, you know, like the, the title track. And Well, is it a reflection of the times? Is it, you know, uh, you know, let's say, let's say the, the 60s were peace, love and, uh, you know, togetherness uh, in the 70s. Uh, it's, uh, it's more like, you know, do your own thing, man. Yeah. And maybe, um, you know, uh, the hallucinogens were giving way to like, just, you know, cocaine and <laughs> it's <laughs> the drugs. So you're yeah. going to blame it on the drugs of choice. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, definitely a factor. Uh, uh, true. Uh, but, uh, but wow. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, the mind expansion of hallucinogens as opposed to uh, the narcissism that is usually created with the drug like cocaine. Huh? And quaaludes, and you're just like oblivion. You're like hyped up oblivion. I think I think the big thing was um, why this was for was a pivotal year for punk was on the one hand, Prague, Prague rock dominated, you know, was dominating the charts, you know, number one albums. Uh, now, as we said, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, which is they're they're considered prog at this point. Uh, you know, yes, um, you know, Genesis is on the scene, King Crimson. Not a not a huge scene, but uh, to your point, seventy three is a big year for prog rock. Yeah, Jethro Tull and yeah. Emerson Lake and Palmer and and so you had but then the uh, the dolls, uh they they were, you know, whereas those guys would have three albums three uh, a three album set of like where each song was like one album side <laughs> 18 minutes long right, 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 right playing like crazy like classical jazz fusion stuff yeah that no regular person could hope to ever play you know yeah. um, the dolls were recording you know todd rundgren was ostensibly the producer but really they a lot of people say like jack douglas who later became aerosmith's big producer was the engineer in the trenches when they were and the dolls were they were trying to put this album together but they would mess up halfway through a song or not off you know whatever and he would have to splice many takes together and they were they were very uh, shambolic but but when they were when they would play and they would sing out of tune you know live but you know television and the ramones were like watching them you know like at yeah. the mercer art center and right. then they were like Maybe we don't have to be like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and you know we we can just these guys are having fun, you know. Screw it, you know what I mean? We're just yeah, gonna, yeah. gonna have fun, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, uh, maybe uh, a, uh, a, a a a a hard rock version of country, you know, three chords and the truth. Uh, right. When you get down to it, and uh, uh, that uh, you know, it, 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 rock and roll is supposed to be the people's music. And, uh, you know, to your point, you know, you get into, you know, Emerson, Lake and Palmer and, you know, unless you were born a child prodigy, you're not going to play like that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, practice, 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 or, you know, you can, uh, you know, follow, uh, Johnny Thunders and Sylvain Sylvain and, uh, you know, learn a couple of, uh, notes and chords and, uh, get up there and, uh, thrash it out and, uh, you know, say your piece. And, and, you know, there's, there's something to be said about, you know, rock and roll is built on energy first and foremost. And let's face it, the New York dolls had plenty of energy. 
Right. Yeah. All right. So disco, disco. This is, this is the beginning of that as well. You're starting to see it seep in. Maybe even more so than punk, you can kind of feel it in in various uh, edges of uh, of the music. But again, this this is a a, a very New York City um, uh, uh, music form that is coming mostly out of the Latin and gay culture. Uh, is that right? Well. Yeah, I, I think we're th two things with disco. There's the club culture, which yes, like uh, yeah, the clubs were in New York. You know, yeah, the Latin and the, the underground, like Puerto Rican and you know, black clubs, and then the gay clubs. They that that summer or that spring in '73, there were like four big uh, discos that kind of sprang up. Um, like the precursors of Studio 54, you know, that they, they started percolating across the city. Mm -hmm. But, but it, so that was the, the culture of disco. Although I think Philadelphia International Records, I think their rivalry with Motown, yeah. the two, they both were putting out singles that were kind of like the proto disco stuff. Like the, you know, Eddie Kendricks had a bunch of singles that were keep on trucking and stuff. Oh, were, yeah. Great song. The OJs, you know, Love Train, and mm -hmm. then uh, you know stuff like that. So they, they were, and then there were also four songs that were all recorded in '73. But then they didn't. They just started to come out at the end of the year, like um, you know, Love Theme, you know, uh, from um, Barry White singles, you know, um, uh, this theme from Soul Train, uh, TSOP, The Sound of Philadelphia, you know, yeah. Rock the Boat. You know, mm -hmm. Rock Me Baby, those were all recorded in 73, and then they finally became number one hits in 74. Right. But uh, so you had like the club culture that was rising. Then you also had this, the songs and the genre, the, the singles that started to really take off that mm -hmm. year, too. Mm -hmm. So now here we have, we have two very distinct separate styles that, you know, um, uh, being around at that period of time, I remember, you, you know, you, you weren't allowed to listen to one or the other. Uh, you know, if, if you were in the disco world, you know, your whole, uh, uh, you know, culture uh, and, uh, you know, your tribe, uh, your look uh, was, you know, a, a very put together compared to, uh, you know, the thrashing uh, uh, proto-punkers that uh, we just started talking about. And, uh, you know, you never saw those uh, two uh, tribes, uh, you know, hang out and have a good time. Um, so the, the question is, you know, everybody, I mean, everybody uh, will grow gl grant that punk is part of rock and roll but some people will disagree that disco is part of rock and roll so what what are your thoughts on that well i think um disco was uh sort of you know they you know you could say there was like the disco beat like uh, earl young in uh, philadelphia he kind of tweaked a you know a motown beat and but you know in a way disco was pretty much a, a continuation of like r&b yeah you know, you know, they had more lush, lush strings and, you know, uh, they also, uh, they were on the other end of like that long 60s improvisation period where they would have like the long, you know, instrumentals and stuff. But I mean, it's pretty much on the continuum of R&B. So, I mean, do you, do you say R&B isn't rock and roll? I guess like, a, I, you know, you can always, depends on what your terms are, I guess, but I would kind of, uh, I would myself i consider it all like 
going into the same stream. You know, I, but I, I agree. I, I just think that, uh, you know, it like, you know, I, I, I think the, the, the words themselves rock and roll, uh, you know, uh, created, uh, out of black culture, uh, in, uh, the late forties and early fifties, um, uh, you know, uh, encapsulated, uh, you know, it, it, the beginning of, you know, of, uh, all black music, um, uh, and, uh, and then, you know, white kids trying to play black music. Uh, and then, you know, white music, uh, you know, from the Beatles on, uh, and then, you know, there, there is still black music, uh, that is going along right with it. And it all is just part of the canon, if you ask me, um, it, you know, it's, it's still kind of using the same instrumentation. Uh, it's still, uh, lyrically, uh, in, in the same ballpark. Uh, I don't think that it is doing something outside of what, uh, the, uh, the music of, of the youth, which, you know, is really what rock and roll is, uh, started back in the fifties. I think it's just a, a continuation. And this yeah ties back into when we were talking about album oriented rock, there was an interesting, um, statistic that I, I came across when I was right when I was writing this um, that um, uh, up until '73 in the album-oriented rock period, uh, there were the the number of back when AM radio would they would mix R&B and rock and roll and easy listening all next to each other like whatever was yeah. a hit was yeah. a hit, and it seemed like I was when I looked over the years. And kind of way, you know, there's usually, if you look at the number one pop singles of all those years, it seemed like they, like 35%, 30 to 35%, 20, 25%, it was, they were black kind of consistently throughout, you know, those years. But it was, but then when AOR started, you know, kind of uh, much more focusing on albums, artists like Journey and, uh, you know, uh, Ario Speedwagon as the 70s continued and then there was there was a year where disco really peaked around you know Saturday Night Fever. Yeah, seventy-seven. Where it, yeah. it became like forty-seven percent black the pop charts one year, but then there was like this big backlash. And then in the early '80s, there was only like two or th one to two hits by black artists. And uh, like in 1981, there was only like one like Lionel Richie song or something. The one year it was only like so. It's um, it's. I guess my, I don't know, uh, but I think uh, I kind well, of lost my train your, of thought. Your, your point is, is that uh, you, uh, if you want to uh, digest uh, this information and make sense of it, uh, sooner or later in America, you're going to have to consider a racial component to the question. And, um, uh, you know, here we are uh, again. Uh, where I think, uh, you know, uh, as you pointed out uh, correctly, in the later 70s, there was a huge backlash in, in disco. Most famously, uh, uh, I think a, a Detroit DJ uh, put on a uh, Disco Sucks uh, uh, event at a ball game and blew up a bunch of disco records and there was a riot and, and all that. But, uh, uh, you know, I think that... Um, uh, that sadly it, it, it probably, uh, had, uh, some, uh, racial components, uh, subtly, uh, in it, uh, along with some homophobia as well. Yeah. Yeah. But, 
you know, I guess going back to your question, is it rock and roll or not? Then I then I think the next generation of new waivers oh, kind of yeah. brought disco into their mix, you know, yeah. so it became more of, you know, like new wave rock, you know, yeah, or dance, whatever you wanted to call it. But it's still basically the same thing. Uh, out there uh and then third i i i did make the mistake i i said disco punk and new wave and i meant disco punk and hip-hop because uh dj cool herc uh starts spinning records in 1973 and i and i you 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 beat me to it but uh, uh i believe this comes out of the kingston jamaica music scene uh like ska uh, uh and reggae do yeah, he was um he was from Jamaica. His family, you know, immigrated when he was I think in his early teens or like 11 or something like that. But they had they had a a, a number of things in Jamaican culture that he he brought over like eventually one one was that they had these big things called sound systems which were basically they would the um these these guys would set up these trucks with, you know, massive speakers and they would just you know, blast the music and um, then they would charge people like a buck or whatever it was to come in and, you know, dance. And um, which obviously eventually Cool Herc and the other guys started playing in the parks and all that, and, mm. but, you know, blasting their music. And they also had, Jamaica also had this tradition where they would, um, they would uh, pay these uh, uh, studio people to like do, in, you know, to take a single and just give them the instrumental of it. Uh, and so then the, the DJs at these um, sound system parties would what they did they called it toasting, but they would take they would start just saying their own patter you know kind of patterned after a D, American kind of hyper DJs you know they yeah. would just just say crazy stuff over the thing and that that later on you know became part of like our remix culture and all that through yeah. hip hop. But, um, and rap, yeah, where they would uh, they would begin to to rap over it as opposed to sing over it, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, and, and so yeah, Cool Herc would have a guy who would he called his MC who would you know do the you know doing the the rapping, and he would uh, take you know two turntables and he would he would find the usually the instrumentals or the introductions where they had like big drum solos or whatever on these songs like Apache or these James Brown tunes or whatever, and he would just keep it going bounce back and forth on his uh between his two turntables to extend these long breaks you know when it started to end on one of one of his albums he would segue into the other copy of the album and just kind of keep it going and the mm. kids would just they started uh he called it the breaks you know he wanted yeah. to extend the breaks mm -hmm. and then the kids were break dancing they were like making up their dances while they were while he was doing these extended breaks on the, you know and so it started to, he just started getting more and more popular. He was paying, playing in his own uh, apartment complex, and then he started playing at schools, and then the next summer he was playing in the, you know, they were jack, they found out a way to plug in their stereo stuff into the lamp posts at the, you know, local park, and uh, just kept getting bigger from there. That's crazy. Yeah. 73. Uh, here we go. So, all right. So let's shift gears a little bit. Like our rock and roll archaeology series, you add the cultural events that are happening at the same time. Um, a couple of very big uh, political stories occur in 1973. Uh, one that has been affecting the music uh, for almost a decade by that point, and the other about to change the world where women have been stuck uh, for centuries if not millennium 
uh, and uh, uh, something that we are still fighting over uh, almost 50 years beyond. Of course, I'm, I'm speaking about uh, the end of the Vietnam War, uh, which had been affecting the music uh, un- until uh, 1973, uh, and then Roe v. Wade, a 7-2 Supreme Court decision uh, that, um, uh, you know, is uh, has been uh, nothing but a, uh, a constant battle uh, since that, uh, that decision was made, huh? Yeah, I mean, uh, you could say Roe versus Wade, that was one of the... Um big things that caused a massive political realignment not so much in in it in 73 itself it would it, it almost seemed somewhat uh like people weren't a lot of people weren't even paying that much attention to it like rich it wasn't even like richard nixon didn't really talk much about it no. the day that it came out it's not but until the evangelicals uh you know decide to make this a a cause celeb um, right. A few years later, that uh, that begins to to uh, to to raise its ugly head, uh, and then uh, you know um, uh, you know the 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 Republican Party then uh, adopts those um, uh, those folks uh, in 1980, and prior to that, uh, in the 60s, you had a, the beginning of the realignment uh, where the Democrats. Uh, you know, mostly Dixiecrats uh, were shifting from, uh, you know, true blue after the Civil War to, uh, you know, to the Republican Party because uh, the Democrats uh, embraced civil rights uh, with the uh, uh, 1964 and 65 uh, Voting Rights Act and Civil Rights Acts. Uh, And so those two, those two political pillars uh, are the beginnings of the modern day Republican Party, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, yeah. Um, yeah. It, so, it, which 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 of the two had a bigger impact? The end of the Vietnam War in '73 or Roe v. Wade? And and I mean specifically in music. Um, on music, you know, uh, I think with the, the end of the Vietnam War, I think the impact that it had on the music was that. Um, up, you know, a lot of the anthems and things until that point were political, and they were, you know, you know, uh, reflecting like the young men's frustration of being, you know, sent off to die. It was like a right, life and right. death, life and death thing. But uh, so I think for uh, you know white males, kind of after the Vietnam War ended, there weren't uh, there weren't so many uh, things they were being persecuted about. I mean, the you could say um, pot. You know, they were still, there were a lot of songs, like even Band on the Run by, um, you know, McCartney was inspired because he kept getting busted for pot. <laughs> that is true, yeah. Yeah, I think he's been uh, arrested in almost every country on the planet uh, for, 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 for marijuana. But uh, soon, not uh, not much anymore. He definitely knows where he can go, uh, where it's legal. So uh, <laughs> soon to be legal everywhere, I'm sure. So. So, but yeah, I, you know, okay, uh, and I and I threw you on the spot here. Um, uh, you know, one one is ending and it's in the past, uh, and one is beginning and it really it's in the future. Um, uh, you know, uh, you know, the the funny thing is, is as we go through this discussion today, and and in your book as well, you do not see a lot of women. There's one giant who we'll get to. Uh, there are some up and comers. 
but really, it's not until the mid to later 70s that you begin to see many more women in rock and roll. Uh, and even, you know, to the point of, uh, you know, like Joan Jett and the Runaways, uh, you know, you know, full on carrying the guitars and uh, and, you know, acting as much a, of a rock star as the males uh, were apt to do. Um, um, but um uh, as time yeah, goes, was Bertha, yeah, Bertha and Fanny. That, yeah, I think Bertha that was and Fanny. Yeah, it. yeah, and yeah, and they and neither one of them turned into you know hit makers. Um, you know, oh, and Susie Quattro, she was, she yeah, was, she, yeah. Was, she was there at that time. Uh, but again, not you know, I think she was the biggest of 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 them all at that at that moment. Um, but not really uh, a thing. But you know, let's face it, with uh, the advent of of the pill. Uh, and now, uh, you know, uh, Roe v. Wade being a, um, you know, the law of the land, uh, you know, women can now uh, control their reproductive rights uh, and make uh, a personal choice on whether they are going to uh, have a child, which, you know, precludes them from, uh, you know, engaging in the normal rock star life. And I'll tell you, I've talked to several uh, women uh, rockers that were around at that time, and uh, some of them quit because, uh, you know, they started having kids. And uh, the, the expectation was that somebody else wasn't around to take care of them, whereas the men had kids as well, but it never affected their uh, career path. Uh, and so I think, uh, I, I, to me, I think, um, you know, I think Roe v. Wade has the, the bigger impact, uh, and it's something that we all need to think about, especially given that, uh, those rights seem to be eroding, uh, these days. Yeah, definitely. You know, you know, it was interesting. I, there was talking about women in, in the rock world then, or the music world, uh, marvelous this show called the marvelous mrs mazel i just watched uh, yes. and and then had an interesting portrayal of uh, uh carol k wait <laughs> i know where you're going she's very unhappy with that i thought it was great i recognized it right away as soon as uh, she shows up in uh in the uh, the band uh, in the in the program uh i said oh my god look they're remodeling that after carol k uh but apparently carol's unhappy with that oh why was why was that? Did, did you... Oh, you didn't hear the news. Oh, this just came out in the last uh, day or two. Uh, uh, somebody finally asked her, hey, what do you think about being portrayed in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? And she said, I don't like it. My life's not a joke. <laughs> wow. uh, she's had uh, some uh, some tough uh, things to uh, to to deal with. I'm sure she had a lot of tough things to deal with as uh, uh, you know one of the very few uh, female session musicians uh, at the time. Uh, but uh, you know you can't deny her uh, her CV. Uh, I mean, she's played on uh, just a, a ton of uh, great tracks uh, uh, over the the decades. And uh, but yeah, uh, she she does show up in that uh, in that show, doesn't she? Yeah, I, I, I thought it was cool, but uh, yeah, I, I did too. I thought it was great, but apparently she doesn't. Uh, so, uh, all right. Um, you know, another big going, uh, a big event going on in 1973, though it began in 72 and it doesn't end until the next year in 74 is Watergate. Uh, do you think that had much of an effect on music at the time? Um, you know, there were, there were like a lot of, uh, kind of Watergate, um, you know, 
like random novelty songs, you know, out there, but I, you know, I don't think so. But I mean, it, 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 it reflected kind of a general disillusionment, which I think, I guess you could say it fed into like a, between losing the, the war or at the time the war seemed a stalemate, I guess, that they were extricating themselves from. And, and the uh, Watergate, it was part of a general sense of disillusionment, which I think uh, inspired, it was already underway, but the whole nostalgia boom, you know, like uh, going back to the 50s and, you know. The, yeah, I think they, American Graffiti comes out in 73, right? Yeah, yeah, American Graffiti. And they had like all the all the artists from like John Lennon doing a 50s cover album, although that, that wasn't actually, didn't get released that year. But, you know, Elton John, Crocodile Rock, you know, uh, Ringo doing year 16, everybody was doing like uh, nostalgic kind of stuff. So, I mean, you could say maybe like the, the kind of disillusionment with the present kind of fed it, fed a nostalgia boom into the pop to pop music of the time. Oh, you okay. know? But, I see that. But I see that it's kind of convoluted. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. I see that. Yeah. All right. So, uh, well, I do Neil, I do know that Neil Young took, uh, you know, mighty exception to Nixon musically in 1970 with, Ohio, um, but I think uh, Neil is kind of looking inward in 1973, uh, having lost uh, some friends to uh, to heroin. Um, but isn't most of the music turning against social commentary and becoming much more inward and less political? Yeah, and I, I think that is most apparent in um, uh, the R&B actually at the time because there had been this boom for the last couple of years in protest soul where yeah, yeah. All, it's all about like struggling in the ghetto and you know like Papa was a Rolling Stone and just uh, you know everything talking about uh, all the dark things with the you know what was wrong because uh, you know before that like uh, Barry Gordy and Motown had tried to um, yeah, they she wanted to, to play into white uh, American tastes, and uh, they they you know sanded off the the rough edges of uh, African American culture and tried to present a uh, a, a very acceptable uh, face and voice uh, to America, and and then of course you get uh, Al Bell from Stax Records who you know begins to embrace uh, the the more um, revolutionary. Uh, protest songs, you know, kind of, kind of paying attention to what what's going on with the Black Panthers and uh, and others, and and then uh, you know you get uh, Marvin Gaye who you know uh, uh, makes uh, you know his great uh, album, uh, and uh, you know Barry Gordy, as we all know, uh, the story is Barry Gordy hated it, <laughs> and, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, and uh, but because he wanted them to play the Copacabana, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, so. So, so uh, but but that begins to wane in 73, right? Yeah, because, you know, for like a year, you know, it was a what's going on and then um, Sly and the Family Stone, there's a riot going on. They kind of sparked this whole, you know, boom. And then Stevie Wonder really, you know, does a lot of protest in his songs and, and all these artists. But I think it it became such a trend that uh, that probably fed into like the rise of disco because, you know, after like two years of hearing of just how dark and bad everything was, it probably people wanted just escapism. You right, know, so. right, right. And that's definitely the, the, the disco message is to just uh, forget it all, go to the club, uh, take a couple of lines, uh, get a couple of drinks in you and just dance the night away. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
All right. All right. So, of course, I do think, uh, and you subtly make this point, uh, all uh, that uh, of all the artists associated with 1973, uh, and of course, I, I can't get to all of them. I'll do the, my best and uh, ask you as many questions as we can. But uh, uh, the one man who stands out uh, far and above everybody else is David Bowie. By, by 1973, Bowie has his first big cultural moment uh, with Ziggy Stardust. Uh, he's produced Raw Power for Iggy Pop, Transformer for Lou Reed. And on July 3rd, he makes the final appearance of Ziggy at the Hammersmith Odeon. And he begins his first walk away from a successful incarnation that he's created that's taken him almost 10 years uh, to incubate. Um, so first, I gotta just get your basic thoughts on the Starman. I guess, yeah, it was, uh, I love, you know, Aladdin Sane. I, yeah, I think that that's his it's his biggest, you know. Well, that he did that album in Pinups, but Pinups was just a cover album after. Yeah. yeah. But uh, Aladdin Sane really tied together all his influences. You know, he, you know, Lou Reed, Niggy Pop, and you know, Andy Warhol and the Stones and everybody that there's songs on there that kind of reflect everyone. And that, um, but it, yeah, then and it has that. It has the icon on there. You know, the cover where where he has the bolt. You know, yeah. which people. Uh, I feel you know associated with Ziggy Stardust, but but really yeah. By when he at the end of his tour in uh, July, he um, he gave, he put away that persona, and some people say it was because he was he'd been trying for fame for years and years, but it almost was becoming a decade. So, yeah, yeah. But it was becoming a bit overwhelming for him. Like he, he said that that lightning bolt split was reflected in his mind, like. He loved, uh, you know, doing the art, but he didn't like being out touring so much on the bus with all the, the crazy freaks out there. So he was kind of having a little uh, a split in his career. Like he, he wanted to keep doing the art, but he, he wasn't sure about the other aspects of it. But um, and he also up for the thing that he had used to put himself over the edge uh, was um, he really embraced gay culture. You know, he he personally was. Uh, I guess bisexual as, as the decades went on, he just at, became at, more and more head. But can I ask you a question? Cause I always, whenever that comes up, I always say, okay, so who was Bowie's boyfriend? I mean, the closest I've ever gotten anybody to admit is Lindsay Kemp is to say, well, Lindsay kind of was his boy. No, not really. Eh, and he never, he always had women, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, and mostly, intensely beautiful women uh you know uh, you know uh exemplified by his his last wife um uh but uh um i, I and, and and i know it's a complicated subject you know i i think it is uh in 72 73 when bowie makes the famous declaration that he is a homosexual uh and then has to walk that back uh at a later uh, date and let's face it he he definitely was um uh, 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 grabbing um, uh, gay culture and and infusing it into uh, some of the other influences um, uh, like Japanese art uh, that is creating you know the Ziggy uh, character and even the Aladdin Sane character as well. Um, but 
Uh, it's 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 an interesting subject with 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 Bowie because uh, while I think he does do a lot um, by you know trying to um, uh, normalize um, uh, and at least you know bring uh, homosexuality homosexuality out of the the criminal um, uh, darkness, um, you know at the same time he's not really a homosexual. At at best he may have played around with being from from everything that I've read and learned uh, over the years. Yeah, yeah. He says he said in an interview, like his when he lost his virginity, it was to a, a boy because he was just he was like horny, you know. And like, <laughs> it was, and then like, yeah, I think he did have like older men, like one manager and Lindsey Kemp, who were like kind of could help him, you know. And yeah. so that was you know that kind of situation. Oh, he probably loved them too in some way, but yeah, I think there was. A big part of it was he said in an interview that um, long hair and free love by that point were not like shocking anymore. And, you know, part of him was, you know, a PR genius, you know, yeah. so he's trying to, you know, uh, think what what's going to what's going to make a splash. You know, he's, mm -hmm. he's like, I've been trying to do this for like six years or whatever it was when Hunky Dory was coming out, you know, or, or I guess it was the man who sold the world maybe when he had the dress on the cover. That, so, yeah, he, yeah. He, he was, you know, he, there's, and the, the, I kind of make the comparison in the book. There's some parallels between him and Bob Dylan because when Dylan came out, he, uh, for two years, he wrote the greatest civil rights anthems ever. Yeah, protest political. songs. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and then he was like, I'm done. You yeah, know? walked away from that and said, no, I, I, that's not really, you know, that's not exactly who I am. I just was, uh, you know, following uh, the scene. And there's nothing to be wrong about that from an artist standpoint. You know, you, your, your, you know, your job is to reflect life. Uh, and so if that is the scene, if that is what's going on, um, you know, then, you know, you want to try to comment on it, uh, in whatever your, your discipline is. Um, so it, it, it makes sense. And, you know, uh, uh, you, you gave, gave a, 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 a great, uh, point there in that, you know, being, uh, uh long hair, uh, and, and, and a hippie aesthetic, uh, just wasn't shocking to the public anymore. So, uh, you know, if you want to get noticed, um, shave your eyebrows out and dye your hair orange, I guess. Right. And wear a, like a speedo yeah. uh, kimono. So, yeah, 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 yeah. And things like that. So, you know, um, but, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, Bo Bowie is, you know, is thought of as such this huge cultural icon of the early 70s and, you know, most um uh exemplified by Ziggy Stardust and 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 the Aladdin Sane uh, looks which are let's face it uh, Aladdin Sane is not exactly a huge departure from Ziggy Stardust now Thin White Duke and you know Berlin and 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 and, and the later uh, uh incarnations definitely are um but what what people again this kind of goes back to the I was talking about a little bit earlier it's a, you know it's it's when you look back you just assume some things are just the way they were. And of course, there's no surprise that Dark Side of the Moon would just be the biggest selling album of all time. But actually, that's that's a bit of a surprise. And again, with with this, you know, the glitter glam uh, genre that Bowie is, uh, you know, uh, the the once and future king of 
is not really a big deal, especially in America. In fact, he doesn't even have his first top 10 hit until 1975 with fame on a you know late night binge recording session with John Lennon. So it's kind of weird about that. And I want to get your take on why you didn't why you think that glitter you know what are your thoughts on why glitter or glam didn't translate well in America at, at its time? Yeah, 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 you're right. Yeah, because yeah, Bowie, I think he was the one of the biggest in the UK that in '73. But in yeah. like in yeah, in America, Space Odyssey, like an old song, kind of crept into number fifteen when he was touring. But that was that was it. And they say glam was only big. Yeah, and that was it, actually a song from '69. So right, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was like, but glam was they say was big in New York and L.A. and that, and then. That, yeah, they, they, and ironically, Detroit and Cleveland, like the most industrial. Oh, really? Places. Okay. All right. But but not even San Francisco. But, it, you know, and maybe, you know, and England had its own scene, like their, their pop charts really diverged from the U.S., you know, in the 70s, you know, like they're, but um, it, so they, it was just, I, I don't know, it, it, I think it was, it wasn't until, again, we go back to MTV, like that whole glam thing finally got beamed in through MTV with, you know, Duran Duran, like 10 years later. And then, you know, that got beamed into Kansas or whatever it was, and kind of through osmosis or through constant exposure, won over the mainstream. But um, maybe back in 73, they, it was just too, you know, you know in, the, in the South, Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings were just kind of making being having long hair acceptable to the, the country <laughs> artists. So like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get it for David yeah, Bowie, yeah, you know. What yeah. I mean? Oh yeah, yeah. Imagine, uh, yeah, <clears throat> imagine walking uh, the streets of uh, of Memphis uh, dressed up uh, as uh, Ziggy Stardust, or or <laughs> or your you know your personal uh, uh, reflection of uh, your hero uh, Ziggy Stardust. Uh, yeah, you'd get your ass kicked uh, again. <laughs> America, uh, you know, uh, the you know the 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 first question is usually okay. Well, what's the racial component? I don't think there's a big racial component here, uh, but there is a homophobia component uh, uh, to this. I think uh, uh, that comes out because you know not only is Ziggy Stardust, uh, you know, this huge thing, uh, especially in the UK, uh, which is uh, beginning to. Um, you know, talk about uh, sexual fluidity. Um, there's also Rocky Horror Picture Show, I believe, uh, right. is uh, is um, uh, first on the West End uh, in 1973 as well, which is you know uh, uh, discussing the the same topics. Yeah, yeah, I think, and I think that's one reason uh, why when Bowie died, there was such you know an outpouring because I think 73 was a big year for represent. In, in that uh, um, the an American family that was like the first show that had like that was like a reality show about uh, you know uh, like a family in uh, Santa Barbara California but the son was I think the first openly gay guy on TV he, he was trying to be part of the Warhol crowd and everything oh uh, the Loud family uh, you're right you're right yeah, yeah Lance Loud and it was the first year that um. And the, the physician, the first, the first reality television show, too, I believe. Right, 
And but it, yeah, it was the first year that uh, like the physician's desk manual took homosexuality oh. out as like a as a disease, a, right? Disease. Mm-hmm. So I think Bowie kind of reflected all you know the the inroads. He, that was that was an interesting thing between '65 and '73. The book had, in '65, the big civil rights thing was. Um, you know, uh, civil, you know, black yeah, African American civil rights. Experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, you know, you know, men being drafted for the war was starting, but in 73, it's much more, yeah, the women and uh, gay rights, you know, yeah, was, yeah, are, beca- was, are, are rising, uh, as, uh, both, uh, uh, artistic fodder, uh, and, uh, a, a political movement. Um, uh, and, uh, um, you know, we're still fighting some of those battles. Uh, you know, a few other artists that have to be brought up with this discussion, um, and, and, and there, there are two sides of the, of the coin, I, I think, that falls along with this. Uh, you know, since we're talking about Bowie uh, here and, and, you know, the, the, you know the, the first inklings of homosexuality being uh, uh, more accepted in uh, the general um, society, uh, is obviously Elton John, who does have ginormous success, uh, uh, you know, and and you know, even though I, I he wasn't completely out, um, you know, it's pretty obvious to look at Elton at that period and go, yeah, yeah, there's a gay man. <laughs> Although it's funny with, I think there were a lot of people in America that were just that went over their heads. Even so, you know, like, like yeah. with Liberace, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, and, I, and well, I think that that was the survivability of being gay prior is, you know, you just didn't talk about it. You know, you just, you know, were 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 yourself, and you know, you were a uh, quote unquote, uh, you know, confirmed bachelor or something like that, or you know, you lived with roommates or what have you, or this is my friend, uh, so on and so forth, but. You know, now it, it does become um, a, a little bit uh, more uh, seeping up uh, into visibility uh, in the in the culture. And, uh, you know, uh, you have Elton John on one hand, who is, um, you know, uh, you know, now an unabashedly uh, uh, and, and fiercely proud uh, gay man, uh, but certainly uh, exhibited all of the attributes of that, even in 1973 when he comes out with, uh, you know, probably his greatest album, uh, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Right. Although, you know, it's funny, just before we move on from that, there was a funny quote from a, a guy who wrote, was one of his songwriters, like after Bernie Taupin, that said he had been, Elton had been kind of, Elton and Bowie never really clicked. They yeah. tried to hang out a couple of times, but yeah. they just, uh, but um, the guy said that uh, Elton was a little irked at the time because Bowie wasn't, was not really a gay guy who was taking on the, guy. yeah. And Elton, Elton was the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was a gay guy, but he felt like he couldn't come on and be totally honest about it, you know, at the time. Although yeah, visually it seems like he was totally being honest, but I guess yeah. he didn't feel like he, it wasn't until a couple of years later, he talked about being bi in the press or something. Right. But, Right, right, right. Well, and conversely, uh, on the other side of that coin is perhaps the biggest American band at the time, and that's Alice Cooper, who releases both Billion Dollar Babies and Muscle Love. Billion Dollar Babies is a number one album. And the funny thing is, is that it's, you know, a lot of people throw Alice Cooper band into the glam category and I, I laugh at that because it's you know it's the beginning of shock rock. It's it, it it's no, there's nothing 
uh, while, while there is some overt sexuality to it, it's all heterosexual. And to be honest with you, it's much more of a of a uh, you know a, a, a fantastical horror. Uh, um, uh, aesthetic than right. uh, than you know trying to comment on uh, on uh, you know sexual fluidity, uh, which I think the English were 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 much more interested in. Alice's and 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 the band are you know are just out to try to shock the audience, uh, especially because you know they start off. Granted, they you know as people may not know their quick story you know uh you know they rise uh, to become like the premier band in tucson they realize they need to go to la um they go to la they're 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 signed by frank zappa's label and they're horrible and they and and they can't quite figure out what to do and they do kind of they're early on trying to embrace boas and uh and some of this freaky uh, underground uh, uh, gay culture that was was in L.A. and that doesn't really translate. So they go to Detroit, uh, where things are much rougher and harder and industrial, and they then grab the blood and the guts and the babies and the and the and the guillotines and the whole show that went along with it. And so they, uh, uh, by rejecting some of that and going on the opposite path of blood and gore. Uh, rise to the very top, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Iggy, he was really uh, challenged by Iggy Pop and the Stooges. Actually, yeah, back oh in, yeah, you know, they like actually to... saw that. Yeah, and the MC5. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, there. Uh, I, I had the pleasure of talking to Dennis Dunaway, uh, and that was one of the questions that I brought to him, uh, the, the bassist for uh, Al, the original uh, Alice Cooper band. And uh, yeah, I mean, when they got to Detroit. Um, uh, which was, you know, a place that they felt they could escape to from L.A., and they thought that things were definitely happening up there. They needed to harden up, and that's that's kind of uh, why they they kind of fell into this. You know, they were always theatrical, but now they realized, you know, oh, it's a it's a Halloween show um, uh, sort of thing, and uh, they went full full bore with that. And, and you know, it's this is like a sidebar, but kind of tied into the glam then. Then you had uh, Lou Reed. I'm, I'm tying this into Alice Cooper. Like Lou Reed, uh, you know, Bowie produced Transformer. Was walking the wild side. Big his big hit. Yeah, uh, his biggest hit. <laughs> biggest hit. Yeah, in April. It was like in '72, but it peaked in April '73. And but then he decides to do Berlin. Kind of was like blood on the tracks, but his disintegrating marriage. It kind of didn't work with Bowie, and that album just uh, was so dark and like nobody bought it. So then he did a live album recorded at the end of the year, and it was with Alice Cooper's band. It was like, uh, well, rock and roll, uh, uh, yeah, ro uh, rock and roll an animal with, uh, uh, <clears throat> oh, uh, who are the two guitar players um, uh, that are on that? Um, uh, but yeah, well, they were actually, the they, that was before Alice grabs them uh, with Welcome to My Nightmare. Um, oh, I see. Oh, there's so there are uh, session guys who then later became part of Yeah, that. yeah, they became part of uh, Alice's band after he got rid of oh, uh, I got the you. original uh Alice Cooper band. Um uh Dick Wagner and uh Hunter. Oh, I'm really close. Uh but yeah, the, those two guys and 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 yeah, uh, uh you know, uh, a a glammed up uh, Lou Reed and uh a live album with a hot shot band. 
um, uh, with the uh, the live uh, rock and roll album. I know what you're talking about there. So, oh, because he was working with Bob Ezrin, who was with Bob Ezrin, yeah, was and that's the Alice key. Cooper's producer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. All right. So the the other person who just we have to bring out here is Stevie Wonder. Um, he releases Intervisions. Uh, and uh, the songs are peak Stevie. Some some people call Intervisions his best album, uh, and I, I might agree with that. But at, at the risk of taking something away from the great genius himself, I think we need to talk about Stevie's partnerships with uh, Malcolm Cecil and Robert uh, Margulaf, uh because they change his sound uh, so dramatically by introducing the synthesizers and programming that those two guys did right yeah it was a uh, tanto like uh, the um the original new timbrel orchestra it was their um it was a bunch of synthesizers like in moog synthesizers it was like this big uh, huge control panel of synthesizers and they would just kind of stevie would just come in and like jam for like uh you know days at a time and they would you know, work with him. And then he wouldn't even know what he recorded, but they would listen back and they would find like these amazing, you know, song ideas in there and stuff. And they would come back to him and say, Hey, listen, you, you really got to develop this. And they would help him write lyrics to him. And then they would, uh, you know, expand them into songs. So, th and they recorded like four albums all in the same one and a half years. Yeah. You know, like his big run there, you know, yeah. Those guys and uh, yeah, peak uh, Stevie Wonder. These two guys are are helping him develop uh, this unique sound, and that's and that's something that 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 I want to talk a little bit more about is that you know in in by seventy three um, you know uh, in the sixties uh, you know rock and roll is still being invented uh, both uh, in the studio and 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 live, and and most famously you can follow the Beatles' career and and see the technological changes. When you get in the seventies, now you have you know these huge uh technological abilities that can be exploited uh pink floyd's dark side of the moon uh, as we talked about you know the engineering that was uh involved that created an a highly unusual sonic palette that you know you can take for granted today but at the time was uh you know was mind-blowing and uh uh, a, a huge leap forward. Uh, the live sound uh, is uh, is also uh, getting to be uh, a big deal. You know, we mentioned the Who's Quadrophenia. The reason it's called Quadrophenia is because they intended on making it in Quadrophenia. It never really worked out that way, but that was the point, and they thought they could uh, put that into a, a live uh, situation. And so what is happening, and again with Intervisions and, uh, and what Stevie Wonder's doing with uh, Malcolm Cecil and, uh, and Bob Margulov, is that uh, they're still inventing new sounds. They're struggling for new sonic sounds uh, that uh, will engage the audience and separate themselves out from the competition, right? Yeah, yeah, I guess... Uh... Yeah, we always think of the 80s as the synthesizers period, but this is really when, when it was going really, on here. Yeah. yeah, this is when it really started. You know, them and the, the prog rockers, obviously, are messing around with it as well. You know, <clears throat> granted, the uh, Moog synthesizer is first introduced in 67 at the Monterey, Bay, uh, Monterey uh, Pop Festival. 
and uh, you know, and then it's uh, uh, you know uh, used uh, sparingly a little with the Beatles, Simon and Garfunkel, and the Who. Um, but by the time you get into the uh, the mid part of the early decade, 72, 73, you know, it's, it's you're finding it everywhere. Uh, and that is, you know, really giving you uh, new sounds that, uh, you know, even it, it, it's not it's not grabbing a uh, an unusual uh, instrument found in a small corner of the world. It is creating something completely out of whole cloth. Right. Yeah, and I, and I guess craft work would take that to the biggest, yeah. you know, and they were kind of, uh, uh, they'd been around, but they were really starting to get, I think 73 was the year they just started to work with drum pads. They kind of created their own version of drum pads, you know, mm -hmm. to get, and they were getting getting away from as much, uh, you know, uh, live or the old-fashioned instruments as possible, and they're trying to... Uh, Really, uh, create the new uh, computer uh, driven instrumentation that we live in today, right? Electronic EDM, yeah, EDM, EDM. electronic dance music, right? All right, I think the diggers would be upset if I didn't have you at least comment on the biggest band in the world at the moment, and, and that is Led Zeppelin. Of course, I, I think we both agree that 1971 was their big year with zeppelin four but you know in 73 they are still in peak form with houses of the holy and a massive tour right yeah yeah and, and the, i think they were you know probably the biggest band in the world with the tour that year and then and i think i i talk about that how they were trying to in a way yeah houses of the holy it's much more lighthearted than zeppelin four and they don't really try to top stairway to heaven on that album you know like they uh like they, you know, they have physical graffiti and cashmere right yeah yeah but it, and i i try to bring in cashmere in there because they started working on it at the end of 73 they started oh. you know they recorded it but yeah that was the one that they really tried to i guess match stairway to heaven but um yeah i think houses of the holy they were just trying to show much more of their kind of lighthearted side even to the extent that i personally i would take the crunch off that album. I don't know what you think about, what do you think about that song where they're trying to do like the James Brown thing on that? Uh... Um, you know, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, a poor attempt at, uh, you know, uh, uh, English guys trying to play funk. Uh, I know I, some people say, Oh, this is a funk version. I, I, I just don't hear it. <laughs> but, uh, they, I, they, they recorded a great song, that year, or they started to work on the Rover from Physical Graffiti. Yeah, it's all, I always wish they took off the crunch and put on the, put Rover. the Rover. Right, right, right. <laughs> and but it's a great. I love Over the Hills and Far Away. That's actually my favorite Zeppelin song. So I think. Oh, there's some, there's some good tunes on House of the Holy, uh, 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 Dancing Days, and and a, and a few others uh, that are on there. Um, but uh, you know, why why do you think you know? I mean, we, we we talked a little bit about how some of these other acts, um, while important and will make huge waves uh, in the future. Um, you know, Led Zeppelin is just conquering the land left and right. Um, why do you, why do you think it worked so well for them, uh, as opposed to some of the others? You know, but like, uh, I think in a way the, you know, Houses of the Holy, it, it's, it's kind of perfect teenage music in a way, like, like it, just, it's great music for going around with your friends and just going to the stadium and, 
you know, hanging out in the parking lot beforehand and then just rocking out. I mean, it wasn't, it, it, there wasn't, you know, a ton of like lyrical depth or anything. Yeah, there's, it, but... okay, there's no politics. There's uh, no social commentary. There's no sexual fluidity uh, in, uh, in the presentation of, of Led Zeppelin. Um, there's, uh, uh, good songwriting, uh, definitely a master, uh, uh, rhythm section, uh, between, uh, John Bonham and John Paul Jones, uh, you know, an incredibly, uh, uh, inventive, uh, guitar player and, uh, you know, uh, you know, a lead singer who, you know, can howl, uh, with the, uh, the the you know with the wrath of a god uh yeah. and and looked like one to to boot so um yeah uh, you know it's uh it's it's it, it, it's a funny thing uh you know knowing that uh you know they they come out of the ashes of the Yardbirds and you know jimmy page uh you know is definitely uh the uh the genius behind uh the, the act uh and uh along with uh, uh you know a great manager who uh you know understands and protects his charges uh like a mother hen um right. or a, a, a wildcat <laughs> or, 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 or or yeah or or a, a grizzly bear uh might be a, a better metaphor for peter grant um uh and um you know, and a work ethic that uh, that really um, uh, allowed them to, uh, you know, conquer, uh, all, you know, all uh, parts of uh, of the world wherever they went. And and you're talking about sounds. It, there's some dispute about um, how much Glenn Johns, I guess, originally helped. But I mean, Jimmy Page as a producer, just because he was yeah. such a master producer, by the time he, he started Zeppelin, they, yeah, they they, they just brought depth like a new uh, sonic depth to the whole uh you know listening to the to the music and the way the drums were recorded and it, it took it to a no, a new level you know and all the other bands had to catch up to them you yeah know I mean? well that's 71 to 75 and maybe even push it to 77 uh i, I there's just nobody that even you know gets close to you know where they sit in the pantheon of rock and roll at that moment yeah although there is this little band that uh, just starts playing their first shows uh, and, uh, you know, take a little Led Zeppelin and a little Alice Cooper uh, and a little of Bowie's uh, Japanese uh, 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 cultural uh, appropriations. And you have those four guys out of New York uh, wearing white uh, kabuki face paint that call themselves, what was it? Kiss. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, they were, they were the ones that they, actually they were the ones that took glam to the bank. You know? Yeah, they, they did. <laughs> well, they, they they had a bit of that horror show uh, to it. Uh, the uh, the party all the time, uh, and uh, let's just have a good time. Lyrical content without too much depth, uh, and uh, an, almost a monochromatic <laughs> show uh, to to go along uh, uh, with that. Um, a little more. Uh, again, a little more shock horror than uh, sexual fluidity, uh, and maybe that was the formula to take uh, in the mid '70s uh, to to make it big. Uh, uh, all uh, Alice Cooper and 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 now Kiss. Yeah, they uh, they started out playing in the I guess in New York that time there were three clubs, like one in Queens, Coventry, and the you know the Mercer Arts Center, and there's like one other one where you were allowed to play non 
covers you could play originals mm-hmm. and they were they were on they were into the the dolls dolls scene but they kind of decided when they were wearing makeup they weren't androgynous like they were like you know and they were watching alice cooper and you know uh gene simmons like famous monsters of filmland uh you know the the A monster magazine. magazine yeah yeah and they just uh started they developed they figured we'll go we'll be kind of like the dolls and alice cooper and kind of develop our own they brought in the fire in fact on new year's um when it turned from 73 to 74 this would have been a wild show, but I, I think they opened for Iggy Pop in New York, and uh, maybe Blue Oyster Cult was on that bill. I'm not sure, but um, they that was one of the first times uh, Gene Simmons was playing with the fire, and he or he was throwing these these things into the air that would ignite, like they were I forget what you call them, but they're, they're some sort of like magician effect where you know they uh, you throw it in the air and it pops and it makes a flame, yeah. uh-huh. but he threw it into some poor kid's face and he said it like it burned and melted his face down over his face and their manager like freaked out and took him outside and got him and hustled him to sign this contract that he wouldn't like sue him and then brought him back and but the kid like loved kids he was like they're the best band and they took him out to the ambulance and he was telling the reporters they're the best band I ever saw I love them even though they Gene Simmons like threw you know something in his face by accident but Gene Simmons also lit his own hair on fire that night too. And they, the roadie had to come on and put like a leather coat on his head. <laughs> so he was, it was the early days for kiss. You wanted the best. You got it. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, they just play their first shows in 73 and go on to uh, some, uh, a bit of world domination uh, uh, out there. All right. Another cultural side trip, because uh, this is where a sea change is happening. And, and that is the woman's moment uh, movement. Uh, you know, we, we, we did talk a little bit about uh, Roe v. Wade, uh, but let's throw out that the Mary Tyler Moore show is a top ratings winner. And of course, Billie Jean King uh, defeats Bobby Riggs on t- on television in a tennis match. Uh, and while the future of women uh, in rock and roll is still a few years out, Joni Mitchell releases Court and Spark. And while it is a hit, like most of Joni's work, it seems underrated in, in some ways. Um, well, every, everybody knows, you know, Joni Mitchell, and they think of Joni Mitchell as, uh, you know, this musical genius of which she is. I still think she is the most underrated artist of the entire rock and roll era. What do you think? Yeah, I could, I could see that. You know, I mean, in fact, she even that year was part of her confronting that not being taken seriously by the, the, the male, you know. Uh, power structure because she with her new album court and spark she wanted to bring in a a band and uh she wanted so originally she reached out to the the section yeah the you know, LA the, section yeah the guys who played on like james taylor and you know yeah russ kunkel and uh danny korchmar uh lee scalar that that whole group yeah but her yeah her style was um so uh unique that uh the the drummer wasn't couldn't quite follow and they were a little patronizing to her and you know but finally he was like look you need a jazz drummer you know like because she would I, she wasn't you know straight down the middle four four or whatever it was you know so she started working with the L A Express these uh, jazz guys 
and uh, that so that uh, that I think that album was the, you could hear her really finding the excitement. She also had uh, you know she began a long-term affair with the drummer, you know, on that album. But yeah. um, you can really feel her excitement and finally having a full band behind her that really gets her unique kind of, you know, the, her chords, you know, and her time signatures and everything. And it, she's really just takes off and flies on that album, you know. So it's, uh, Yeah, it's just surprising that just, uh, you know, uh, you know, this this period of time is again there's just the the smattering of women is far and few between and um uh you know you can see where it's going to make a big deal and you know you know to me you know obviously some of these uh political and social uh events had to occur uh you know uh you know uh you know the advent of the pill in 1960 uh now roe v wade in 73 uh the acceptance of women in the workplace uh you know the beginnings of uh of equality uh the beginnings of the era uh, uh amendment uh and uh, the need for that to to continue um you know uh the struggle let us say is in full force uh, by the time you get into the mid seventies and by the time we end the decade, you know, women are now, uh, you know, a, a part of the, uh, uh, the, the workforce in, uh, in general and in entertainment and in music and in rock and roll. Yeah. And part of that, the EEOC, the, um, the government agency, the equal op opportunity, employment opportunity commission, mm -hmm. uh, they had two landmark lawsuits that year where they forced AT&T and then, uh, or they, I think they started Ford. They, I don't think the Ford resolved yet, but they, they made them have to um, pay millions of dollars to uh, uh, women who were denied being promoted and also a uh, minority, you know, uh, men and women who were denied being promoted. They, it was like the largest lawsuit of, um, uh, the time where they had to both compensate people for lost pay and also, you know, start promoting them. So that was, uh, that, that was one thing that happened in 73 that led towards what you're saying by the end of the decade, a, yeah. a better situation. But, and it, you know, but uh, to your point, it was, it's interesting. Like Joan Jett was watching Susie Quattro who Susie Quattro had kind of an un unusual situation because her dad had been a bassist in a, professional musician and so he gave his instrument to her and then she never felt like a um any kind of limitations and she saw elvis on tv when she was young and she was like i want to be elvis and she got the leather suit and she was the first woman who really looked like a rock 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 and roller with that leather suit but uh joan jett when she saw her she wanted she, her music teacher said women don't play rock and roll you know and yeah and it, that was kind of parallel to at the time uh, Maria Pepe w wanted to play Little League, but the Little League organization tried to block her, you know, and it was it took like a court order for them to like uh, finally let women start playing or girls start playing Little League, you know, so it was still still like that old patriarchal thing was still in full force that year i just don't understand it uh, you know every argument that is put up uh, uh ends up uh, being nothing but a lie 
uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and proven that, uh, you know, we're all just people. Uh, we all deserve the same shot. And there is no hierarchy of one is better than the other, whether we're talking nationality, race or gender, uh, you know, uh, to each their own. And, 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 and it's the individual and the individual's desires that, uh, uh, you know, life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness, whatever the fuck that means. <laughs> right? that, that's like Erica, you know, that year, Erica Jong's book, uh, Fear of Flying, Flying came yeah. out. Yeah. That was like kind of the, it gained attention because there was a woman protagonist at the time who was saying she wanted the zipless fuck. She just That's wanted right. to beat a stranger on a train and, and, and fuck him and yep. have the same right to do that as like a, as you know, a, guy. a guy. Right, right, right. All right. Well, to flip on to the other side, I think we have to mention the Southern rock and country outlaw scene. Uh, which, you know, is happening in uh, middle America and the South. You know, you have the comeback of the Allman Brothers after losing Dwayne in 71 and Barry Oakley in 72. Uh, we have Leonard Skinner releasing their first album uh, with the venerable Freebird on it. Yeah. And also like Tuesday's Gone and Simple Man, like tons of great stuff on that album. But uh, yeah, oh, and yeah. actually the, the managers of the Allman Brothers one of their, their two brothers, one of them wanted to uh, represent Leonard Skinner because um, the they, they had grown up yeah. around, they, they in Jacksonville, I guess, you know, they had been around, I guess Leonard Skinner had been a high school band for a decade, but they'd been around when the Almond brothers were rising. And, but one brother said to the other, like they're too similar to the Almond brothers. So it ended up ended up Al Cooper snatched him up, the guy who played organ on Like a Rolling Stone. And yep. had been with uh, Taj Mahal, I guess. He, he, so he, um, but yeah, they both of them and that, that there's both of their successes kind of started snowballing. And then ZZ Top came out with Le, Le, how do you say it? Lagrange. Lagrange, yeah. Lagrange. Uh -huh. Marshall Tucker Band with Can't You See came out that year. That's like one of my favorites. You know. Yeah. 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 Uh, Cap Capricorn Records and uh, Phil Walden uh, is who you're thinking of with uh, with uh, you know managing the Allman Brothers uh, uh, out there uh, in Macon, Georgia. And then uh, that was the year the Allman Brothers. Uh, Chuck Leval, how do you say his last name? Uh, Leval? Chuck Laval. Laval, he, yeah. he he joined them. Or Chuck Lavelle, excuse me. Lavelle, Lavelle. yeah. Because it was interesting because. Uh, I just, uh, I just saw him a couple of months ago, you know, because he's the keyboard player for the Rolling Stones. Right. Yeah. And the, but back then, I guess Greg Allman, I guess he and Dickie Betts were kind of both, you know, with, uh, well, with Greg Allman being gone, then, or no, Dwayne Allman being gone, Greg, I think it was kind of like, is Greg the leader or is Dickie? Uh, right. Yeah. And, but Dickie had like the, he was writing Ramblin' Man and all these, but, Greg was kind of, you know, drinking a lot. So they were kind of ignoring some of his things in the studio. So he went off and did this, this great solo album that year with yeah. like a great covers of like, uh, this, uh, these days by Jackson Brown. And I guess he found Chuck and brought him out on the solo album, but then he came into the band through that way. Yep. So, so yep. 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 Big year. All right. And then in Nashville, uh, because of Bob Dylan, people like uh, Chris Christopherson, uh, Willie Nelson, uh, the Shotgun Willie, I think, comes out in 73, and Waylon Jennings' uh, Honky Tonk Heroes comes out. Uh, they are sick of the Nashville sound uh, that was perfected by Chet Atkins and a few others and create this whole new thing uh, that we now call Outlaw Country. 
Yeah, the, when they I, they when uh, Willie had been trying to make it in Nashville for a decade, you know, he had a he had written some massive hits for some artists, but on his own albums they would uh, they'd make him put on the strings, and he couldn't use his own band and all this sort of thing, and so he. He finally just got so frustrated, he went to Austin, where they had this kind of unique um, counterculture scene going on around there. And um, he, he, then he, he uh, Atlantic Records signed him, um, Jerry Wexler. Mm-hmm. They, they, had, they were trying to branch in the country, so they figured they would both, you know, they'd, they'd sign Willie as an artist, and also he would kind of tell him what was going on in country. And they gave him his first freedom for the first time. And he did Shotgun Willie and uh, Phases and Changes he started working on. And um, uh, RCA was so scared they'd lose Waylon Jennings, you know, in the same way they lost him. <laughs> they Willie. let him do whatever the, the damn, damn thing he wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, and so he did like Honky Tonk Heroes. <clears throat> and, uh, so they they were finally, they, they started using their own bands. And, uh, you know, before that he hadn't, he couldn't smoke pot in the studio without somebody telling on him, you know, so he's, they, they get to do that and wear whatever they wanted. And they just, uh, they, they said they, Billy Joe Shaver, who wrote the tunes on uh, honky tonk heroes. He says that after that album, you know, things opened up in Nashville and people could uh, start wearing, they didn't have to wear those plaid suits and ties and everything, you know. So uh, the counterculture started coming to the uh, country music scene. Well, again, I, I think you can all blame it on Nashville Skyline. Uh, you know, in 69, Bob uh, comes to town and disrupts the the way things are and people start uh, paying attention. Uh, so, uh, all right. So did I miss anything? And this is the author's choice time. Did I, did I miss something that's... Uh, really important that happened in 73 uh, uh, That's uh, that you talk about in the book? You know, th- I guess um, the thing that comes to mind is uh, the implications of the oil crisis. Ah, yeah, OPEC, yeah. Because until then, I think uh, labor had had it pretty good in the country, relatively. You know, uh, like the, the auto workers and stuff like yeah. that. But um, after the oil crisis... Uh, well, through most of the '70s, a business kind of stagnated, and but then they started to uh, retool, and they, you know, business kind of came back with a vengeance in the '80s. But um, by that point, they just using auto, the auto industry as like an example. They had started to move more factories to the south, and then eventually they would move them mm. to, uh, you know, Mexico and beyond and Asia. And so I think. Um, Originally, after the oil crisis happened, you know, companies wanted to cut, figure out, they had to, they had to make, they had to account for this new raise in their costs, you know, the oil. So they tried to bring down the prices of their labor and they just kind of kept pushing, pushing. I think the, when they look back now, they say, um, when you uh, factor in inflation, uh, the median average wage for Americans hasn't risen since 73. And I, uh, so I think probably the oil crisis was the, uh, the beginning of that, kind of like the um, pushback against labor. And uh, uh, since that time, uh, business has really managed to kind of keep things down. <laughs> to so the, the beginnings of income inequality can be found here in 1973 with the, uh, the, the oil crisis was used 
by the capitalists to uh, to take back control of the country. Yeah, I I, I see your point. I, you know, the the 70s are are to me a, a transition from uh, you know the end of a liberal cycle, uh, probably um, uh, begun officially with the election of FDR in 1933. You know, all through um, uh, you know the Great Depression, World War II, the New Deal. Uh, and uh, the GI Bill, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, America on the rise, the American century, and by the time you get into the seventies, you are in this transition period where we are going to head into a dominant conservative political philosophy, which has ruled since the election of Ronald Reagan in nineteen eighty. Yeah, yeah, it's. Um, I, 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 this is going a little bit off tangent, but looking back over um, history, uh, they have this thing on uh, Wikipedia, a list of um, uh, the uh, proletariat uprisings or like peasant uprisings throughout history, uh -huh. you know, in the West, and they all were crushed <laughs> until like around, you know, 1900s, you know, labor kind of had its moment, you know? Yeah. But uh, I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm worried a little bit going forward. I don't know, the, like the technology is... Um, you know, uh, so much on the side of the, the big monopolies. I don't, I don't know. I, mean, I, I don't know if uh, those that have power intend on keeping it uh, to themselves is, is your point. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. I wonder if this, if that'll be the end of like a kind of golden era for the, the working men. And uh, I don't know if, but hopefully another one will come again. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, uh, at the risk of uh, adding, um, you know, uh, non-music to our discussion today, um, you know, uh, if you ask me, the uh, the American century, which is will be always remembered as the 20th century, um, was the rise of the common man, the rise of labor. And, and I think the art reflects that. I think rock and roll and why it was so dominant is because its themes, uh, its aesthetic, uh, its audience, its choices were geared towards the average citizen uh, uh, out there. And, <clears throat> and then raising those of the lower economic um, uh, standing uh, up uh, as, as as you went on, and and the funny thing is, is that I I don't see that as the primary driver of of art uh, these days. It it reminds me a little bit more of uh, the Gilded Age or uh, even prior to that. Uh, you know uh, where uh, you you know you, you the artist depended on patrons uh, of 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 power and wealth to uh, to survive, and therefore the uh, the art itself was geared towards um, you know, the interests of those patrons, you know, hence, uh, you know, you get, um, you know, opera and, and symphonies, uh, you know, which are, you know, th their subject matter is dealt uh, in, you know, in the interests of those, uh, of those, uh, those powerful people. And, right. uh, and I just hope that, you know, uh, we wouldn't have been talking about, uh, you know, the reggae from uh, Kingston, uh, you know, or, um, you know, the, the rise of, of gay culture, uh, through glam and glitter, uh, you know, uh, the women's, uh, movement of, of the seventies, the, uh, the protest African, uh, music of, uh, African-American music of the very late sixties and early seventies without, you know, that audience demanding more art 
from its artists specific to that uh, and those artists coming from that. You know, one last thing I'll say uh, is that, you know, the fact is, is that John Lennon would have been conscripted into the army uh, as opposed to art college, um, you know, had uh, the UK not followed the example of what the United States was promoting at that time in the 1950s. Uh, and uh, we never would have had the Beatles. Right. Yeah, exactly. So we are at a crossroads. <laughs> Both at the book and today, uh, and I think in 73, it's the end of the monoculture, <clears throat> while uh, a lot of people put 1973 as the peak year in the rock and roll era. Um, uh, you know, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on a particular year. You know, you have two books out now where you, you point to 1965, you point to 1973. I know it's really hard to pin the peak, and I might propose it's more of a mountain range, you know, with several years in contention of the, the peak, uh, uh, depending on uh, the perspective and the, and the data points that are used. But 73 does have to be in contention, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, I mean, I got a. There was a guy who did a great book on 1971. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, my own personal choice, I love the 60s a little bit more, you know, so just as a personal taste, the 60s would be my personal top, but the 60s books were all done and now we're moving into the 70s, you know, to, to do new books, to do, cover a new period. But, you know, between 71 and 73, you know, when you have, like, like you said, Zeppelin 4 versus Houses of the Holy, you know, Who's Next versus Quadrophenia, you know, uh, Sticky Fingers versus um, Goat's Head Soup. I, I concede that in terms of the top albums, like 71 might, you know, has the edge possibly on 73 to, you know, a, a nose. But I think the the pure, like just high volume, crazy density of so much great music. Like I, 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 I go down the rabbit hole. I try to do this Spotify list for the Facebook page of the book. Um, of the top 200 songs of the year, you know, mm -hmm. and it's, you know, whereas like in 65, you had like satisfaction and um, like a Rolling Stone, which are like huge anthems that are just like, uh, like crystallize the whole moment. 73, you don't have like this one anthem that like expresses everything that, that people are going through, but just the sheer torrent of insanely good music. You know, it's just, uh, So I, you know, is it the peak year in terms of like an individual uh, piece of art? I don't know, but in in terms of uh, the sheer volume of greatness, it's pretty pretty dense year in terms of great music. It is, and you know, you said something at the beginning uh, uh, where you know it was the end of some things. Uh, you know, the the last of the the great uh, uh, works put together by um, the artists that came out of the '60s. And it's the beginning of a, of a lot of things that are about to come uh, as we move into uh, the 70s and, and even into the 80s. Um, and so it is it's kind of a, a transitory year uh, when 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 you think about it. And I think that is the larger point that you are making in the book. Yeah. They, when I wrote the 65, I loved the overlap between the oldie style and then the the psychedelia that was just creeping in then, you know, like that, that moment where both, both are kind of uh, mutating together. And then, so this was like another period of uh, mutation, you know, the, the sixties 
artists were peaking and then the new genres that would kind of flourish in later decades, like we talked about hip hop and disco and punk, they were uh, just rising, you know? So it was, you kind of had both of them going at the same time, which I really liked. All right. So what's next for you, Andrew? Well, if, if this one sells, then uh, I can do an 80s book. So go out and buy, go to your <laughs> Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever you get books and uh, buy 1973, Rock at the Crossroads. I think you should just do a book for each year, uh, <laughs> starting with 1954 and moving on through. Uh, so, uh, Andrew Grant Jackson, thanks so much for being with us on Deeper Digs and Rock today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's always a, a blast to talk about this stuff with you. Thank you. You walked into the party like you were walking onto a yacht. Your hat strategically dipped below one eye. Your Big, big thanks to our friend Andrew Grant Jackson. Uh, the guy is like a rock and roll computer. Uh, we just love his books around here, and we hope you do as well. You know, please, please run out and grab 1973 Rock at the Crossroads uh, from our friends at Thomas Dunn Books. And uh, it can be found uh, wherever you get your good reads. Uh, this is a great reference book uh, that can be picked up at any time and perused at leisure. So... As I was saying at the top, it, it was hard to choose the four songs I would use from 1973. Uh, you know, I did go to the charts and try to pick a few from a few different angles. Yeah, I stayed away from the poppier songs, um, though I guess You're So Vain is a bit poppy, but come on, that, that opening bass lick is sick. Uh, Klaus Vormann. So I get to throw in a Beatles reference. And, uh, you know, if you've been paying attention to the R&RA, you'd know the Beatles make an appearance in every episodes since they've shown up uh, whether it's about them or not <laughs> also you know with the song it's such a game uh, in rock and roll you're so vain uh, i just had to put that one in marvin was just so sexy and the wing song meant the most to me because i love me some 007 and that was my personal favorite song in 1973 uh, either that or superstition um yeah, I, I could have taken the number one song of the year, Tie a Yellow Ribbon uh, by Tony Orlando and Don, uh, but that's a bridge too far. Crocodile Rock was in, and then it was out. Frankenstein or Hocus Pocus, Will It Go Round in Circles, Reeling in the Year, Love Me Like a Rock, Smoke on the Water, the most overplayed riff at any guitar shop in history. Yeah, anyway... I'm literally just scratching the surface. The year 1973 is an incredible one for rock and roll and was well worth Andrew Grant Jackson's time. You know, I could have gone with the cover of The Rolling Stone by uh, Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show. I love me a one-hit wonder, but I saved the best for last. Why? Because this is a song ready to make a comeback. I mean, this is the sign of our times. 
Someone has got to do a cover of this song and do it now. <laughs> yeah, this too is from 1973. So without further ado, you all stay safe and do your best to keep up the rockin'. Digs and Rocks, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.